Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce the guests, I have two things. One is, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to be a subscriber, a supporter of the show. It is so important for us to have your support so that we can keep the show going, not only for the people who listen to it and the professionals who use it as part of their learning, but also for people who want to be on the show in the future, who we have already connected with and people who will be connecting with us in the future. So go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. It should just take you a few minutes and become a supporter. Also, as you've heard me talk about, I like to find out about where the show is listened to around the world. And I just found out that we have listeners in Sri Lanka. So if you are listening from that part of the world, be in touch with us. Let us know what brings you to the show, what interests you in the show. And so for today, I am so happy that you're going to get to hear another conversation that I was lucky enough to be able to have with John Atak. John Atak has been a consultant and an expert witness in at least 150 court actions and has worked on over 200 media pieces. His history of Scientology, Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky, is a bestseller. His most recent book, Opening Our Minds, exposes the similarities between authoritarian cults, terrorist radicalizers, and spousal abusers. It highlights the manipulative tricks shared by PR firms, advertisers, political spin doctors, too. John, along with his son Sam, also hosts the podcast John Atak Family and Friends. Here's John now. It's so nice to see you, John Atak. It's wonderful to see you, Rachel. It's been far too long, really has. Far too long. We may have emailed back and forth here and there, but I always like our conversations. I always learn so much. So this is exciting that we get to be able to have a conversation and have it be something that we are able to have our listeners hear and it's really nice to be able to connect with you. I know you've been doing so many wonderful things. And so I would love for you to just take a few moments and fill people in on sort of who you are for people who didn't hear the first couple of times you were on the show and are not as familiar with you. But then also for us to talk about whatever you want to talk about, clearly, because we could take this in a mi- in many different directions. But if you don't mind just taking a few moments and introducing yourself. Absolutely. I was involved with Scientology from the age of 19 until I was 28. And I got high up 25 of the 28 levels that they con you into doing. But I was a public member. I was never on the staff of Scientology. So I think, in my experience, having talked with more than a thousand former Scientologists, I'm the only one who wasn't abused and humiliated. (laughs) I was just fee-paying public, you know, so uh, they were nice to me. And I left because I thought Hubbard was gone and it had been all been taken over. That was way back in 1983. 
within a few months, I completely, having been a real true believer, I completely lost any belief in Hubbard or Scientology. But I remained a part of, curiously, a part of the independent Scientology community. And I was indeed one of the creators of the current independent movement for my sins, largely because of the harassment and litigation that they faced. So I would help them out, even though I was no longer a believer. And that it eventuated in the first history, in fact, so far the only history of Scientology, uh, let's sell these people a piece of blue sky. I did deep research. And um, this isn't, you know, Google wasn't, wasn't available. So I had to write to people and get letters back. And, you know, I got hold of all of the available files on Hubbard, his Navy file, his Veterans Administration file, his FBI file. And I pulled together material from 150 people in all. The largest contributor to my work was Hubbard because, of course, he was a very pro prolific talker and left behind a tremendous treasure trove of material about his background. I, at the same time, I worked on, uh, with Russell Miller uh, on his wonderful biography of Hubbard, Barefaced Messiah, which in fact was based on my manuscript because I couldn't get my book published. And so he came out before I did, but which allowed me to pick up some of the things he'd found out. I worked on about 150 court cases related to Scientology, including some of the famous ones, the David Mayo, Lawrence Wallershine yeah. cases. Uh, ben Corridon's place. And for a dozen years, I researched Scientology and I, I talked with people who'd been involved and they sued me and I was bankrupted in litigation costs. I had no other debts. And then they harassed me for another four years after I, in 1996, said, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> they carried on harassing me and I just became ever more interested in the psychological side of this. What, what, what had made us so willing to believe. I'd met some fairly intelligent people. Uh, I mean, I knew eight practicing doctors in this country who were Scientologists. Um, I knew uh, two people who worked for NASA, who, who were PhDs working for NASA. And how was it that, that this had attracted people and put them into this endless um, hamster wheel of trying to achieve supernatural powers? And of course, it, you know, an aspect of that is how had I been taken in because I liked to think of myself as an intelligent human being. Indeed, I have a friend who worked in counterterrorism. She's a professor of, of psychology. And she, when we first met uh, by email, she said that she knew my book, which I thought was really strange. Why should be she'd be reading? She's an expert on the Black Widows in Chechnya. She was working in it. Why would she read? And she said she recommended it to people. And I didn't quite understand this until I asked her for a little puff piece for the new edition. And she explained that it was to show that even somebody relatively intelligent could be taken in by crazy ideas. So uh, I'm the poster child for that, I suppose. Um, I, so I then became you know, fascinated by the whole gamut of groups. I, I, I read back through history to, to understand how groups of belief had formed, you know, beliefs and doctrines had caused strange beliefs through the centuries. In fact, I went back as far as I as you can get, I think, which is to the Mysties, who are about 1800 BC in Greece, and it's where we get the word mystery from, the mystery of that time. And they they would have an oracle who predicted the future to them and, and off they'd go, all you know, wrapped up in 
in those ideas. I, I looked at all sorts of religious groups, and I then drifted over into looking at terrorist groups, at gangs, some extent to pedophile grooming. And if you know, you've encountered the, the same sort of things, large group awareness trainings, multi-level marketing, the group of largely authoritarian practices lead people to believe that uh, that they're going to be given a great deal for very little input, always end up the other way around, that they give everything and for pretty much nothing in return. I looked at um, human trafficking, at pimping. It seemed to me that the same dynamics functioned wherever I looked. That led me to write a book called Opening Our Minds, trying to look at the, the broader view you know, society as a group of interlocking cults, if you like. People's lifestyle is is dictated by a set of beliefs. And I came to focus on authoritarianism. You were involved with the Open Minds Foundation, which, which I started in 2014. They're still out there. I'm doing some projects for them. I, I no longer, you know, I haven't worked there for three years now. And my current project, bringing us up to date, is a curriculum for UK schools in the uh, personal, social, health, and economic education field. And that's it's really to, to have a series of lessons about coercive control, about the propaganda, about human predators, um, things which are sadly not really taught. I also have a, a contact in Oregon, a teacher there who uh, has a PhD as well. Um, and we're looking to refine this for American public as well. And I'm hoping that that will be my last significant project in this field so that I can paint pictures and write novels again, which is what I do in the real world. <laughs> right. And have, and have a wonderful garden. I do have a wonderful garden. This is true. Yes. Right. I know I put together a bit of curriculum and, and, you know, it doesn't get used necessarily. I mean, you can kind of shop it about, but only if people are interested. So it's sort of sitting in my office, but I think to see what, what you've done, I really would. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm happy to share it. It's been an interesting project with how to, um, how to get, people of different ages to understand this, how to make it relatable. And I think also to have parents be on board with this as well, with reinforcing the messages at home. And some of it is to have it be something that the kids of any age can share with the people they love as well, that it can be dinner table conversation, hopefully, and then have an exponential impact. But right, I think for people to see that this happens in so many different environments to varying degrees, and it looks different potentially in different environments, but still, it's basically the same kind of Science. I think, you know, you bring up so many good points, but yes, the for you being the poster child of someone who is bright and capable and still got into that kind of thinking and adoration and uh, kind of dismissing maybe a critical eye and what that does and what part of the brain has to be sort of quieted so that the other part is able to be fully activated. I'm sure that there have been a lot of studies that you've done on that as well. So I'd be curious to hear about what you've learned about what this does to the brain. I'm, I'm sure the most important work that I've seen is uh, Yuval Lahore. And, you know, Yuval. His PhD was called The Religious Ape. He and I have 
we're just great friends. We've we worked closely together for seven years now. He's writing a book which will hopefully be available in the next year or so. And, and he's brought a different dimension to this. So yes, of course, we're dealing with, with the interaction in, in the brain. We can say, you know, the prefrontal lobes, where, where the, the critical thinking is, the, the thing that's meant to separate us from Neanderthals, that we have this developed uh, frontal cortex. And the way that that is caught up with the experiences in the temporal lobes or in the amygdala and the, the limbic system, the old brain, the reptile brain, that because our processing of information is so incredibly complicated. Part of the problem is that there's a great tendency to suppose that, that it's a lack of critical thinking that gets people involved in, in difficult, dangerous, extremist, authoritarian groups. But if we look back historically, then uh, Galileo had two children. He put both of them into a nunnery. Such, you know, this is the man who's meant to have been religion versus science, science versus religion. So both of his daughters were put, he put in a nunnery, probably because he was too mean to pay their dowries. Isaac Newton was a Unitarian. Had that been discovered during his lifetime, he might well have been executed for that belief. Michael Faraday, who gave us the work on electricity, was a Sandemanian. He was one of 25 members of this little cult. There have been a lot of people who had strong religious faith. Uh, Georges Lemaitre, for example, who gave us Big Bang Theory, was a Catholic priest. He had to persuade Einstein that was right. So the thought that some people have that, you know, you'll become, if you're utterly realistic and, and rational, you'll be an atheist and you'll, there'll, there'll be a set of beliefs and nothing will, nobody will ever con you again. It's not to do with critical thinking. It's not to do with reasoning. Those elements of us, we need to refine as much as we can. We need to be as smart as we can. The way that it applies emotionally. Jill Bolt Taylor, who was a Harvard neuroscientist who then had a stroke and took her seven years to recover. And she wrote a lovely little book, which I think is called something like My Stroke of Luck or something, mangling of words. But in there, she says something was the effect that we believe that we're thinking animals that feel, but the reality is, and this is a Harvard neuroscientist, we are feeling animals that think. I think Yuval has shown a real light on that, the way that our experiences connect us to events. So we uh, suspend our judgment. doesn't matter how clever you are. You know, I'd, I'd read Socrates before I got into Scientology. It's about the emotional attachment that you will make to a person, to an idea, to a doctrine. And at that point, one of the foundations is William James, the founding psychologist, put forward the idea of noesis, that we have feelings of knowing. There's an American neurologist called Robert A. Burton who wrote a book called On Being Certain, which is a whole book about the way that we fail to comprehend the world around us and instead follow what we would like to be. So we have, of course, confirmation bias, have cognitive dissonance, where if something feels you know, wrong to us, we will cleave to our belief. And the stronger the evidence, the more we will cleave to our belief, as Leon Festinger showed. By pulling that together and looking at the evolutionary nature of our development, which Yuval has done, and showing that we treat the cult leader as a parent, we treat the other members of the group as siblings, and we largely treat non-members as ignorant children. So we develop relationships which exclude others, we then have a narrower and narrower focus of interest. So for example, in Scientology, 
we were being told that we would have superhuman powers. I'm not really sure how I got involved with that thought. That that didn't appeal to me when I joined Scientology. I came from the Soto Zen community where you had the term Gedo Zen. Gedo Zen, anything magical is dismissed. So coming from there to a place where I was going to get supernatural powers and nobody has any supernatural powers. You know, you deal with Scientologists, they, they had to create an intelligence agency to invade governments and steal documents because they didn't have the supernatural powers to just go and scan them in the cabinets as they were, you know. And of course, they were led by a, a man who was consistently unwell, both physically and psychiatrically, who very likely had temporal lobe epilepsy. Um, again, something that Yuval has studied in some depth. We've just done a, a piece about that, which will be should be out before this, probably. Um, but it, it, it fascinates me that that we seem to favour leaders who are narcissistic. I'm not very happy about the term narcissistic. I think Freud misplaced it and put it on a wrong track because, as Eric Fromm points out, narcissists are not people who love themselves, as Freud supposed. They're people who, who don't experience love. They're people who are not loving, and they need adulation to give them a personality. And it it's that such people, and that you know, history is littered with such people. Hitler is a, is a very good example of somebody who, just by telling everybody he was certain, got people to do absolutely inhumane, dreadful things. That is this authoritarian relationship where, if we allow somebody else to make the decisions for us, if we believe that somebody else has superior knowledge, and, and they may do, you know, they may be an authority. You know, if I'm if I want surgery, I'm not going to go to a plumber, and if I want plumbing, I'm not going to go to a surgeon. So authority and expertise are good, but where we don't understand and give over control of our thoughts and our lives to other people, we fall into the hands of predators, and unfortunately, that is human history. Most of our leaders have been predatory. They've they've been selfish, self-involved, and all too often believed in their own special powers or special abilities. So, and I think we've come to a point in history where we could change that. We could actually elect leaders who care about us and who follow science and evidence rather than, you know, the opinions that they've got from Norman Vincent Peale, for example, in Donald Trump's case. I, I think we are really at a, a potential turning point in society. And the problem is that society has become so pessimistic, has become so negative, has become so polarised all over the world between the populist leaders and people who are actually trying to do something. And the political parties themselves are infested. You know, I, I'm not happy with the Democrats. I'm happier with the Democrats than I am with the Republicans at the moment, but I'm not happy with the political parties in the US. I'm certainly not happy with the political parties here. They seem to have lost the plot, not looking after the environment, not creating a, a good non-authoritarian education system, not restricting certain chemicals that are going out throughout the world, you know, whether it be C8 or the various things that we take up instead of iodine, the fluorine, chlorine, bromine molecules, which are very likely affecting our intelligence. So the things that I feel politicians should be focusing on, cutting down pollution, not giving us 
you know, seafood with mercury in it, for example. Those things are not being addressed properly. They're, there's just a lot of window dressing and short-termism. As long as we get elected the next time, everything will be fine. Right. I think a lot of people are uh, disillusioned. They're worried about the political and social landscape. They're worried about what's going to happen during the next election cycles in many different countries, what we're going to see in a very primal way be brought out in people uh, or be given permission to, you know, kind of run them up. And that so much of it is, it feels to me, it's very hostile, but it feels, I mean, for lack of a better non-patronizing term, it it feels so juvenile, it feels like uh, kids saying, I'll meet you behind the school, you know, three o'clock and, you know, the bullies who are taking up some sort of an argument and wanting to win and needing to have that sense of power. And right, that's when the lens becomes so hyper-focused. It's when you get lost in the weeds, as they say, and you're not looking at the big picture. You just need that sense of satisfaction, which is very young. And I really want the conversation to be elevated. I want it to feel like it's grown up sitting at the table. Couldn't agree more. We're now in the Twitter sphere. I saw a little bit of footage a few months ago, and it, it was in the US. And there were two groups of people standing within a yard or two of each other with megaphones shouting obscenities to each other. That didn't seem to me very useful. So coming back to try and find some common ground. I mean, in Europe, we have Orban in, in Hungary. We've just seen a new Italian premier, Meloni. Again, the first right-wing premier in Italy since Mussolini. <laughs> I'm hopeful that she won't be quite as extreme as Mussolini. But that populism that divides people into shouting crowds ra rather than encouraging dialogue, you know, that we hope that the Truth and Reconciliation Programme, as it came out of South Africa, and I think it was a disaster in South Africa, but nonetheless, I, the idea of it, I think it worked very well in Northern Ireland, where people sit down and they start learning how to have dialogue and think to the, the other and understanding that, that reality is not that simple. That say, As I say, I'm hopeful. I don't like the word optimism because it, it seems to me a, one should be realistic. So I seek to be realistic, but I am hopeful. I, I think that for me, the main problem and, and why I'm concerned about education with kids We've both worked in recovery, help, helping people to come back from the dreadful experiences they've had. And that can, you know, for some people, that's they're very resilient and they bounce from it. For other people, it, it will probably be the rest of their lives that they'll be caught up in this and it's just making it easier. To see that somebody can be suffering for decades because of something that happened in an authoritarian and abusive relationship, where if you could have in an hour, or two, roofed a person up against that. So got into the prevention, and I saw that the people in our field, you're just overwhelmed by work. You know, there are far too many people out there who, who need help. And so you know, close friends that I have are still working with recovering members. They're overwhelmed generally. So to be, I know you've done some preventative education as well being able to go out there and make it so that, you know, 1% of kids understand this so that they will live their lives and they will be little beacons to say, oh, I don't think you should sign that contract. To change that perception, I, I think, has, has become vitally important. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I also think, you know, going back to this idea, I love this thought about that within these groups, people are promised a great deal for very little input or contribution, but it's always the other way around. I mean, I think people do want to get something that feels like an immediate payout, something magical, something on a grander scale than anywhere else. And all they have to do is, well, as it's presented, kind of nothing. They just have to be open to it. Um, But that's never the, the case. I feel like the idea of delayed gratification needs to be reintroduced as a value <laughs> uh, because that also is more adult. So we're going to work towards something and we don't need to just have the satisfaction of being the loudest person in the room uh, or being the most intimidating person or getting our ideas agreed with. And that feels good. But again, zooming out, which takes time. And I think there there isn't the same relationship to time now. And there's more of this need for immediacy. Absolutely. Attention spans have gone down from an average, I believe, of 12 seconds to three seconds. I'm reading Karl Marcy's book about um, social media from the point of view of a psychiatrist. And he's saying that um, basically the digital immigrants, people like you and I who were born slightly before the time of computers, and the digital natives are showing a different profile that digital natives their attention span is shorter and the tolerance of boredom is gone. And maybe there's some balance to be had. You know, I've been a fairly outspoken critic of mindfulness. There's Willoughby Britain's work at Bratton University, well worth looking at, somebody who's a practitioner who has been rational in her approach to this. But the one thing that meditation can give you, and I was a meditator for a long time, I, I don't do any for, haven't done any formal meditation for a while because I concentrate on things. I am able to listen to a symphony all the way through or you know, a new elbow album or whatever. I'm able to look at uh, paintings. I'm able to watch a movie through. And it disturbs me that you know, my kids will now be in the room and they'll have their phones. So there's this division of attention that's going on all the time. So in that situation, learning a meditative form, though I must admit I prefer contemplative forms where you actually are looking at something, considering something. Having the Gansfeld effect hallucinating while you're looking at a white wall is not necessarily as good for us as some people think. But being to being able to experience boredom, being able to go, it's fine. There's nothing happening. Great, you know, <laughs> which is so hard for people. You know, the the next bit, and apparently, uh, people will give. On average, I think three minutes of their time to any particular piece of input. And it's all about, well, I'm bored now. And, and you switch to the next thing, you switch to the next thing. That has to have repercussions in terms of attention and in terms of care and consideration for other people, because life becomes thrill seeking. It becomes that short termism rather than looking for the abiding pleasures that we we can take out of of life we we're just grabbing the next candy bar and uh it's rotting our teeth it's not good for us right oh, that's beautifully said i wonder as you're talking it's so interesting because if there is this sense that people can focus for 3 minutes i mean even i don't know if the, people have that awareness and it's good that you mentioned it that that's the time span for some people it's less some people more but roundabout 
then I think uh, people who are um, tailor making their message to the populace, then no, they have to up their game. They have to make it exciting. They have to make it dramatic. Um, they need to connect with someone again in that kind of primal way to keep their focus, to get their attention back. And so I wonder how many people are playing into that when they don't necessarily mean everything they say, they just need to be listened to. So much of what's happening now is in this sort of exaggerated state, like the volume's been turned up on the wording, um, on the superlatives, you know, on the danger, et cetera, et cetera, I think just to keep people focused. Yes, the the thing is to create arousal so so that you'll have an audience. I I mean, of course, being involved in social media, we have to have some awareness of it. And I've gone off and read a few books that get an incredible insight into to what's happening. The, here we are on on YouTube or whatever podcast platform, knowing that probably ninety five percent of any of these platforms is nonsense it, it it has no it's it's meant to be entertaining the junk lords people who will buy a lamborghini with the revenue they've made from their youtube channel and will then drive it into a swimming pool as a stunt so so you can watch this that kind of aimless mindless activity is largely what is happening on the internet you know pornography of one sort or another basically whether and it is about grabbing people's attention. So understanding how that's done, you know, that our first lesson for, for kids is, is going to be on fake news, sales pitches and propaganda. And you come down to some very straightforward rules about how, you know, this is done and how you get into somebody's head. And it's just like this thing of if, if somebody approaches you on the street, if a stranger approaches you in a bar or, or wherever, and they are immediately your best friend, they're trying to sell you something. Now, it could be a thoroughly nice person who is just looking for an interesting conversation. But the odds are that's not the case. The odds are they want to sell you a product, a service, or a faith, a belief system. And just to know that, to know that when somebody comes up to you ebullient and, and grinning, they aren't your best friend and you need to take it slowly. And then what they'll be offering, you know, they'll then get the love bombing, that lovely Mooney expression that, that, that they'll tell you how gorgeous and how wonderful you are. It's leading somewhere, it's going somewhere, it's, it's the opening of a sales pitch. And it's so obvious when you have seen how obvious it is. But until you've seen how obvious it is, especially if you're, you know, 15 years old and, you know, you're being offered something that's going to make you a millionaire in just a couple of weeks' work. Or We live in a PR world. We live in a world where there is so much selling. I mean, I'm very interested in David Graeber's work, the anthropologist, called The Anarchist Anthropologist, sadly no longer with us. But he wrote a book called Bullshit Jobs. And it started when he, he wrote an article called Bullshit Jobs. And he went on holiday to a place where there were no phones. So he didn't realize that, in fact, this had been picked up all over by people. There was graffiti in the underground in London quoting this article. So he came back to find he was famous. 
he thought he'd better write a book about it. You know, so and in surveys, about forty percent of people think their job is bullshit. They're probably right. You know, the, the people in middle management who have to tick the boxes and do things. Maynard Keynes, as he points out, the economist said that um, by the 1960s, people will be working a 15-hour week. And we could be if we hadn't sort of decided we'd use slaves in special economic zones around the Pacific Rim to do everything for us. If we had actually automated our factories and worked things out, we wouldn't now be looking at China and going, oh, no, what's going to happen next? And instead, it was the the profits. It was the well, Nike, you know, moved to Indonesia, and that started this whole trend of of using people who are virtually slaves. I am very sad to say, you know, and of course there are more actual slaves in the world today than there have ever been. There are forty million people, according to the United Nations, in slavery. A great many of them in India. It's a thirteen million. They've said. It surprises me, you know, I've, for 27 years, I didn't buy anything that came from South Africa because 38 people had died in detention, beaten to death in detention. And then I'm looking at India going, 13 million slaves? Why am I buying anything that comes from there? Why aren't, why aren't we do some, doing something profound about that? Why aren't we looking at the real things that matter in society? And instead, it's, it's all about having a nice new vehicle to drive or making sure that you're in a huge mansion to live in. And this whole idea of status that, again, Eric Fromm, talking about narcissists, talks about the pseudo-self, and he reckoned that about 60% of people never develop a self. They really do think that the clothes they wear, the car they drive, the food they eat is who they are. That's how they represent themselves to others because they don't feel at home in their own skin. I mean, I think we we all have to travel that journey to to actually become human to be to to be going. Yeah, it's very nice that you've got a Porsche. Great, you know. And what's that doing to help the environment? Precisely, you know. Looking at our value systems and saying, well, we would like to be happy, having thrills which always fade, which always leave leave you feeling despondent, you know, I ordered it from Amazon yesterday and it's arrived now and I'm bored and I want something else. It's not really a good way to live. No, not at all. I think also that uh, a lot of people will say that once they leave kind of a cultic system, they're used to having their uh, neurons firing, they're used to an intensity, they're used to what feels like immediate gratification, but at the end of the day, really, they're not getting what they really want and need or will promise. And it's very hard, I think, for people to have quiet time, for people to have things go at a slower pace, even though it's much healthier. But I know people have a very hard time acclimating to being in a different kind of homeostatic space that actually helps you physiologically um, because there's this sense that things are taking way too long and that life is boring and that you're wasting time or someone's wasting your time by not giving you something immediately. Oh, I'm remembering now uh, another from quote. He says, common customs and beliefs, no matter how absurd, bring people together and save them from isolation. And then no matter how absurd, we've seen time and time again. But the isolation piece, the connected 
piece, the the need for that, the need for community and connection is so much a part of this too, of people abandoning this sense of really caring about the message because they just love that there's so many messengers, I think, and that they can be surrounded by them and they can be one too, and they can be a part of something. And I think especially with internet age where people feel connected, but really ultimately not because they're still in their bedroom or their living room or kitchen or wherever talking to millions of people, but they're not there. No, it's a very strange disconnection. I remember uh, nearly 30 years ago, I was was in California and Spent a couple of days with a young woman who had been in Scientology for 20 years, and she was working directly to David Miscavige. She was sleeping on average two hours a night. She said five hours was was really good. She usually slept on a bit of foam underneath her desk. And she'd come out to, because her mother was having a hip replacement, she'd come out to look after her. And, I mean, it must have been really difficult getting the time off to do it because, of course, saving the world is much more important than looking after your own family. But And she told me that during that trip, she decided she couldn't carry on. It was very tragic because she was very happily married after a terrible marriage that had gone on for years in Scientology. She now really, really loved her husband. And my job was to be there so that she could meet her husband, who she knew was going to try and get her back. And I, she wanted me there, to, which is a very interesting experience, I must say. But she said that when she came out to look after her mother, she walked around the supermarket and she felt such pity for the other people there because they didn't have the truth of Scientology. And she went from saving the world to having to go to the supermarket and... and you know, deal with real life. So that incredible sense of purpose that people become infected with, whether it's you know, multi-level marketing and they're they're kind of gonna sell all this stuff and do all of this stuff. They're they're being emotionally aroused. And as you say, to then come back to uh, Robert Kaufman in his book Inside Scientology ended by saying that he had left the science fiction world of Scientology and re-entered the science fiction world of reality. And But as you say, the pace of that world, being able to sit and watch a sunset. When I was a lad many years ago, I was sat by a reservoir which had a medieval cathedral reflected in it at sunset. And I I just had to stop and sit down and look. And this guy walked past with his dog and he looked at me and he said, oh, yeah, make a lovely postcard and walked on. That's for me what the difference is, that, that we lose the ability to experience deeply because we push ourselves at too great a speed. So we don't really taste the food. You know, the advice is still to chew every mouthful 40 times for the sake of our digestion. If you see my my son Sam eating, you know, so it doesn't matter how many times you tell him, it's like, let's get this down and there. And you, and you get indigestion, curiously. But the taste of the food is the good thing, you know. I'm too busy. I'm watching television. I've got my smartphone on. I'm. I have to to experience life, to enjoy life, to to find gratification without pressing the next button. You know, like the, the rat with the lever for the the sugar cubes or what have you. Right. I guess I'm wondering what it was like for you again with all of this intensity to 
kind of reclaim the quiet moments. I mean, it, for example, in order to know about, you know, botany, in order to have a garden, you, it takes time, takes a lot of patience, takes a lot of care. You have to go at a different pace. I don't know if that's more naturally who you are. And it's been a nice departure from the intensity. Yeah, I think it's important. As Voltaire advised, we should tend our gardens. I was uh, steamrolled. You know, it got to the point where I, I had so many court cases against me. I was involved in in so much that 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 was seven days a week, three law firms. In the end, it was just too much, and and it wasn't possible to have a any kind of quiet moment for years in my life, and to have come back from that. Always knowing the importance of that, you know, as I say, in my teens, I'd sit and look at sunsets. I got to the point where I was so saturated with the negative events around me, I could sit and look at that sunset, but I couldn't be there with it. I couldn't fully appreciate it. I, I might just get a little glimpse of happiness. So coming back to a slightly less chaotic life, yes, I think it's very important to invest ourselves in something constructive, something creative. And, you know, my particular thing is, uh, I, I guess I have a garden. The front garden is a chaos because that's where the flowers are. And I occasionally put something in there or do something. The back garden is food. I grow a, a lot of varieties of things. And we harvest a lot of fruits and vegetables. And it does give you a different sense of reality. But becoming involved in that, becoming involved in the growth cycle of a plant and, and going, oh, yeah, you know, it's got fruit on it. Or, I think it is particularly rewarding if you can eat some part of it. Though I, it's not that I don't like flowers and I don't have to eat them, but um, I do grow marigolds and nasturtiums that you can eat, of course, and daylilies. You can eat them too. They taste like onions. Not very exciting, really. But to get that sense of a process, of a season, of Rather than I press a button, I get a, an experience. You have to invest yourself in it. And I think for everyone, Joseph Campbell's advice, follow your bliss. I have 20 minutes of every day when you do something that you like doing. And it doesn't matter, you know, that nobody else wants to dance the Charleston with you or look at your stamp collection or, or whatever it is that's idiosyncratic. But make sure that you are giving yourself real pleasure. Right. It's interesting because it's reminding me of something that uh, happened years ago. I, was, I think I was 14 or 15. I was living on a kibbutz in Israel for the summer. And I was there with people from America, also teenagers, and we were trying to experience something very different for the summer. And, and I remember the next morning after we arrived, we're still jet lagged, but we were on an uh, army truck being taken out to the um, potato fields. So because we weren't familiar with farming. None of us were from farming communities. We just had fun. I mean, we were so tired, first of all, but also that we just thought it'd be fun to, you know, kind of throw potatoes, play catch, juggle with them. What did we do? Carved our initials. We just didn't take it seriously. Then lunchtime rolls around. And for the whole kibbutz, there was very little food because they were relying on us to pick potatoes. And we learned this lesson that going back to what you're saying, the more you put into something, the more you get out of it, and that there is this balance to it. 
So of course, the next morning we were very hard at work. But when you go into an environment like a cultic environment or even a relationship with someone who has more narcissistic tendencies, you're always going to be doing more work with very little payout, if any. And so I think it's an important lesson that there needs to be a moment where you take in, what am I getting back for this? And what am I providing? Not just for me, but for other people. Is this going where it's supposed to be going? Is my effort being used in the right way? Because within an unhealthy system, it never will be. You'll just be taken advantage of over and over again and also berated for not doing more. So I love that there was this balance to it. But I sometimes will advise people, even in relationships where I, I see one looking haggard and tired and the other one seems very well rested. I can tell one is working harder to the relationship and for the other person and not getting enough back that there does need to be a system of balance. You're not ever going to have that in an unhealthy system. No, and, and it's fundamental, isn't it? I've, I've just um, interviewed uh, Mike Rinder about his new book, A Billion Years. And Mike and I have become good friends. He was tasked to destroy me for a certain period of time and said he would have done, be, be, you know, thought I was a nice guy and all that, but I was I was stopping man's only hope of salvation. And we've become dear friends since that. And in his book, which I, I really do recommend, you know, having read certainly more than 100 personal accounts by, by members, so many of them are so good. <laughs> Really, they're really so insightful. Uh, Mark Headley's blown for good. Hilariously funny in a couple of places too. The, the thing that really shines out for me in, in Mike's billion years is that he he has to keep returning to this, this kind of thing. Look, I know that what I'm saying is crazy, but we really believed that, that the salvation of the world depended upon what we did. What's more, as, as you said, we were led to believe that we weren't doing enough and we were led to believe that any fault, um, you know, anything that didn't work was our fault. And there's a point where he's criticized by Hubbard for something he hadn't done. And he decides that Hubbard can see more deeply inside him and knows that he needs to be corrected, even though he didn't do this thing. So the giving away of authority over ourselves, to giving out all of our time to other people, commonly known as children, that the way that we sacrifice ourselves in this life, there has to be a balance. And I think what you say is wise, that to, to look at the relationships we're in, the job we're in, the, the family we're in, and say, is there a balance here? Am I getting something back from this? Or am I always going to have to do the cooking and the washing up and the laundry, you know? Which in my case, as a single parent, I've had to do, and, and it's d despicable. I, I'm against it. I'm against it. <laughs> right. Right. But right. And within cultic systems and in an unhealthy relationships, you will always be the Cinderella in the story. You will be the one brushing up the ash from the fireplace and not receiving any kind of praise for it or even respect, uh, but berated for, in some cases, for not working harder or berated for not enjoying it more and appreciating it more. That's always my favorite part. So I'm wondering about the court cases. I'm wondering about the files that you were privy to, this FBI file. You know, I remember 
when Scientology lost it, its tax exemption, then regained it, and you know it's sort of gone back and forth. It was so devastating to so many people when they were able to strong arm people to you know help them with their tax exemption, and and hearing about the FBI break in, and I mean, there's so many things that people don't know about Scientology that I think are really important to know about. And I'm sure it is very interesting also for you to talk to Mike Rinder, who was out to destroy you, not because of his character, but because of his mission that he believed in wholeheartedly. So this isn't a statement about him. But so I'm wondering what you remember from that time. I mean, I know there's so many details, but even just specifically from the FBI file, what do you remember from it? Oh, the, the document I best remember was where Hubbard had written to the FBI complaining about various of his associates who no longer wanted to hang out with him. The agent at the FBI had written, appears mental. <laughs> it was really weird seeing that he's writing all of these letters saying these people are communists. You know, anybody that he didn't like was a communist. He also, of course, wrote to um, President Kennedy offering his conditioning techniques I was told off for saying brainwashing, but I, you know, I said to the person, can you tell me the difference between brainwashing and conditioning? <laughs> Sounds like the same thing to me. He also, along the way, said, um, we can brainwash faster than the Russians, 30 seconds to total amnesia. And you're kind of going, how did you find that out, Ron? You know, <laughs> what did you, what experiment did you perform on somebody to do that? Right. How did you find that out? And I mean, it always blows my mind how transparent L. Ron Hubbard was like, if you want to enslave people, you need to promise them total freedom. And then there was the bridge to total freedom. I mean, you know, it's not like it's such a mystery. <laughs> it was very transparent, very out there about these things. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, I wrote a little uh, primer booklet, Scientology, The Cult of Greed, which is for people who've never been involved, who, who want the most salacious material. And one of the things that I reprint in here is, is a 1947 letter, which was, is in the Veterans Administration files. Let me read you a little bit of it. Once upon a time, um, this is the 15th of October, 1947. It's signed L. Ron Hubbard. It's addressed to the Veterans Administration in Los Angeles. And it says, gentlemen, this is a request for treatment. After trying and failing for two years to regain my, regain my equilibrium in civil life, I am utterly unable to approach anything like my own competence. My last physician informed me that it might be very helpful if I were to be examined and perhaps treated psychiatrically or even by a psychoanalyst. Toward the end of my service, I avoided out of pride any mental examinations, hoping that time would balance a mind which I had every reason to suppose was seriously affected. You're not kidding. I cannot account for nor rise above long periods of moroseness and suicidal inclinations and have newly come to realise that I must first triumph above this before I can hope to rehabilitate myself at all. Would you please help me? Sincerely, Elrond Hubbard. So this is at the same time that he had developed uh, uh, techniques to cure his war wounds and um, to save humanity. This is in... In 1947, this is the period when he's meant to be doing this great work. So coming across documents of that type and then trying to persuade people that they were genuine. That was very interesting, That the cognitive dissonance that this arouses in the Scientologists. So when I pointed out that 
Hubbard had said in 1965 in, in My Philosophy, which is a handwritten document, so it's probably authentic. He talks about being crippled and blinded at the end of World War II. 1957, I think it is, he put out a bulletin called Communication and Isness. And in there, he says that on July the 25th, he was down in Hollywood, 1945, and he beat up three petty officers. So on the one hand, he's crippled and blinded. And you're going, well, maybe it happened between the 25th of July and the 14th of August, you know, the end of the war. But no, I pointed this out to a Scientologist, an independent Scientologist, and said, oh, that's obvious. He had two bodies. Why didn't I think of that? And then I said, there is, look, I've read all 800 pages of his war record. That there, he did not see action. He managed to, to spend 55 hours um, trying to blow up two imaginary submarines off the Oregon coast, off Cape Lookout. And Scientology later, I, I was, oh, this was weird. I was at the airport in Las Vegas changing planes, and I met this, this guy who was a critic of Scientology, lovely guy. And he said he'd heard that they spent $250,000 on robot-operated vehicles to find the wreckage of these submarines. <laughs> and um, I was I, on the same trip, or the next trip, I, I was talking with um, Stacey Young, uh, Stacey Minton, and lovely woman. And um, when I... I was asked by somebody at dinner, well, what's the most absurd thing you've heard this year? And I said, well, $250,000 to try and find a submarine, which, of course, the Japanese Imperial Navy records show didn't exist. <laughs> now, that was the first thing the Allies did was get the positions of all the Axis submarines for rather obvious reasons. And it meant they'd got the file of, there were none, Sunkovke. Hey, look out, that's that. But Stacey, anyway, she sort of, looked at the table reflectively, and I could see that there was something she had to add to this. So I said, well, if I got something wrong, she said, it was $400,000. I ran the project. So I put it to, to this woman who discovered that Elrond Hubbard had two bodies, that he didn't see combat. And she said, yes, he did. And I said, well, how do you know? And she said, I was there with him. And I should have then asked for details of like the name of the ship, for example or any of the crew, or the actions that you saw. But I, I was dumbfounded. It's like, oh, no, you know. Uh, and it takes you off into that strange land of, of, of the past life recall of Scientology. Nine years in Scientology, I never once, and in the 39 years since I left, I have not seen a single credible account of a past life from a Scientologist. You think, well, okay, you, you were at the Battle of Agincourt. On the French side, yeah, tell me something in in medieval French. Let's let's if that's true. And nothing, not the slightest thing. A, a friend of mine who only had a brief encounter with Scientology, but kept on in the mindset. And this is something you have to really underline that if you don't think about it, it will keep on thinking for you. So he spent years reconstructing a past life memory of a town where he'd lived and drawing little plans and what have you. And in the end, his wife, who was not inclined in this direction, said, well, let's go there and let's see what's true. And absolutely nothing of his supposed past life memory was true. He later found out that the town had been built after the time that he thought he lived there. So 
Hey, Hubbard, of course, did his mission into time where he found some bottle tops and, and things buried from his time as a, as a Greek bottle top maker or something, whatever it was he did. And Hannah Whitfield was the captain of that mission and is very amusing on the topic of you know, the, the disappointment that they didn't find all this treasure that he'd buried when he was a Phoenician admiral. So they found bottle tops. You know. Turn it into a book nonetheless, you know, to pretend they'd achieved something. I remember Hannah talking about being on board the ship and laying down at night with other people who were manning or womaning the the ship and that L. Ron Hubbard would be with his, I don't know if it was whiskey or rum, gin, something at night, and would point up at the stars and would say what planet that was and what language they spoke and would, you know, and, and went from one to the next to the next with absolute conviction, certainty. And people were very caught up in it. But still, there was this moment where I think Hannah, I, this is what I think I remember her saying, that you just sort of wondered is this true? And then you sort of dismiss it because it's so engaging and you feel that you're having this special kind of magical moment with someone. And the, is it true? gets sort of pushed to the side because also I think you're supposed to feel that you've been specially chosen to be an audience to this um, because you have a certain standing then within Scientology. And that feels Good as well. I'm wondering also now with the court cases, I know Danny Masterson case and all of that, I'm sure you can kind of envision because of all of your experience, what's happening within those walls to a, probably a greater degree than most. So I'm wondering if at some point we can cover what you think about all of that and if any of it surprises you or if it's just par for the course and this is how they operate. It's very much how they operate. One of the things that shocked me when I came out, you know, people, you're not meant to say anything bad about Scientology. You, you will, of course, at a very early stage in Scientology have, have achieved the ability to communicate freely with anyone on any subject, which is called a communication release, one of the very early levels of Scientology. However, you're not allowed to talk to suppressives, certain people like myself, apparently, you're not allowed to describe the technology of Scientology, which is called verbal tech, and you're not allowed to complain. I'm pretty sure that the reason that I became so caught up in exposing this was because I felt ashamed that for nine, nine years I'd been involved with this thing and applying my energy to it. And to then find that, that the people, particularly people in the Sea Organization, had been so horribly abused on a daily basis, you know, put on rice and beans diets for months on end with nothing else to eat, maybe being allowed half a day a week off, but quite standardly working 80 or 90 hours a week, not being allowed to see their children. Just devastatingly horrible. And I felt guilty that that I'd had all of these conversations with these people and not one of them had ever said anything bad about Scientology. So the amount of cover-ups that, say, the suicide of James Stewart in 1968 in Edinburgh, and Scientology went and tidied the room before the police came, the hotel room that he, he jumped from the window of. I interviewed people who'd been there at the time, David Mayo, uh, Bill Roberts, famous Scientologist. Uh, Robert Kaufman wrote about it. and. 
the story Scientology told the, the the newspapers at the time he was he was a newbie. You know, he he really didn't. You know, he's, it's not our fault. It's nothing to do with us. He was actually on the highest level in Scientology at the time. That's why he was in Edinburgh operating Thetan Level Three course. Uh, which meant he'd certainly been involved. I believe he was the head of the Durban organization as well. Um, and what happened was he had an epileptic seizure and he was told that he, he mustn't have another one because that, that would be wrong. And uh, Tori, Tori Christman was told to stop taking her meds for epilepsy. The wonderful Tori Christman. So I, I found out that I, he'd been, Kaufman talks about him having band, a bloody bandage on his head having had a seizure, having been told he mustn't have any more. And they were making him pick up the lint from the carpet in the waiting room so that everybody would see him being humbled. When I talked with Captain Bill Robertson, who was the head of the organisation at the time, he told me that he punished him by having him crawl across a slate roof three storeys high in the rain. And thankfully, he didn't fall. But that he'd been pushed down to nothing and then Scientology just walks away and says well he was a newbie so it's not our fault those kinds of cover-up Carl Brennan the room was tidied before the police came in there Lisa McPherson I talked with a journalist back then who was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist she hadn't won the Pulitzer for a Scientology piece and she was a woman in her 70s and utterly charming and she called me up we, we talked a few times she said that she happened to know the district attorney and so she'd gone along and said, well, why didn't you prosecute this? And he said, I don't want anybody counting the number of scotch bottles in my trash. So he knew what Scientology was like. And we see this where they've managed to get away with terrible, inhumane things. You know, people who've been seriously injured or who've died as a consequence of, of being you know, part of the Scientology machine. A friend of mine, her husband died in a car crash. And he had insurance and she couldn't claim it because it was a Scientology vehicle and it would have meant an investigation which would have shown that they were had a vehicle on the road that was not roadworthy. And so she then had to bring up her three children inside the sea organization and all this craziness without that benefit. So yeah, Danny Masterson, it, it's interesting that it's going public. I'm hopeful that the cases to do with human trafficking will make some kind of dent. It does seem, I mean, in, in LA, you've had the, the mayoral competition with the, uh, the blow-up over Scientology, which, you know, given this is their heartland, this is where they do most business in Los Angeles, it's got to be having an effect. I would think, I mean, I estimated a couple of years ago, they were probably down to about 25,000 members of the International Association of Scientology. And since then, a couple of insiders have said, yep, that's about the number. So you've got actually what's a tiny organization that has come to be regarded. I think Amazon lists them as a religion. Uh, Richard Dawkins said they were a major religion. 25,000 people. I don't think so, Richard. They're grinding to a halt. The problem is, can we help the people who've been trapped in there? And you know, a few years ago, um, my dear friend Pete Griffiths arranged a thing called Flag Down in Clearwater, Florida. I was called up and told I was the first person who'd been asked to speak there. And I said, you're kidding me. What is this for? This is oppositional. That This is going to make the Sea Org members there feel more justified in 
you know, hating the outside world, we need to do something that helps them. So all of the anonymous protests, again, made it harder for the people inside. And a lot of what was expressed was very much this kind of Twitter megaphone sort of, we're going to come and shout at you. And I'm sort of, how is that going to help anybody? You know, we had a different system when I was down in East Grinstead. And I moved here 28 years ago. It's a long time ago. We found that they were recruiting in different countries. They'd recruited in Zimbabwe. They recruited in Estonia. And they would give all sorts of promises to the people they were bringing in. And if they came from somewhere poor, and these are poor countries, or they were then, Zimbabwe still is, they'd take their passport from them. And there's no way that these people could get home. So we developed a little ruse. I worked with the Christian churches in East Grinstead. And we could put up posters at the point where they got off the bus when they were dropped off there one morning a week off. We put them up in the language of, you know, whichever people it was. So, you know, Shona, Debeli, whatever. And of course, so they were the only people that, that read it. And people were coming out. You know, we were, we were getting people to come out and hearing horrendous stories about, you know, the practices inside many of which we shared with the newspapers. I think human trafficking is the essential subject. The idea that that they co- it would appear they covered up Danny Masterson's activities. They should pay the penalty for that. Danny Masterson should pay the penalty for that. It's been so often successful that they manage, in 90% of cases, to silence people, to intimidate them into silence. Uh, we had a famous case called the Lady case in 1984 in the UK, which was a family case, where the mother said that they'd sat down with a Scientology chaplain and he said, well, the father has done much better in Scientology than you have. He should have the children. And she believed that. Two years later, she came back and went, I want my children. That terrible use of authority that, you know, People have to understand what a damaged and fragile state somebody is in after they've been sleep deprived, suffered malnutrition, and and had this idea that they were working for the good of the cause, and the cause was noble, even though the daily life was was appalling. Right, right. I mean, I I think adding to that, not that it needs anything added to it, it's already quite a list of things, but that you don't get support, you don't get mental health support in any real way. Um, there are many people who've committed suicide or who have attempted it. I think the whole idea that you brought things in, that this, everything's your fault. You pulled it in so that there's this causation, there's a self-blame, there is a blame. There is this idea that you are responsible for everything bad that happens to you. And I guess the good things are because of Scientology, the bad things are because of you. But I, I know that it, people are in a very fragile state and and kept from getting the help that they need. And sometimes they need that help because of their involvement. And But instead, there's something inherently wrong with them, and we're going to help them fix it. And And giving someone a prescription of needing to do more of the thing that is making them ill, and then blaming them for not being well, is, I think, a horrible uh, way of backing someone into a corner. And then when people feel backed into a corner, I think that's when they consider suicide. There isn't a way out of this emotionally, physically, et cetera. Yeah. In 1993, I, I was, um, for a brief, glorious moment, the president of FactNet. I didn't really contribute anything other than my name and 
it made me a bigger target for Scientology to harass. But one project I did do for them was to look at the suicide rate in Scientology. And by looking at the the real membership, not the anywhere up to 11 million that they have falsely found, I don't think the numbers have ever exceeded 100,000 at any one time. But looking at those real numbers and making a comparison to population, I reckon that the suicide rate in Scientology was about 10 times the normal average, way over the normal average. And I investigated a number of cases. And again, for example, Lee Johnston, she had a a two-year-old and she killed herself. Now, those of us with children know that you have a different responsibility to life. She must have been in the most awful position. I spent about six months digging into that. Um, the Express newspaper in this country was was interested in it. And eventually, after six months, and they didn't pay me. I'm not a very clever person, actually, when it comes down to it. That after six months of digging into this, the Express turned around and said, oh, no, we've had these legal letters and we don't run this story. That was so often the case that things, you know, Stephen Crane, there were these names, these people who I used to to work with a, occasionally with a psychiatrist called Betty Tilden, who was an incredible, remarkable woman. And she'd had a case of some parents coming to her saying that their teenage daughter had done a personality test in Scientology, and they found her the personality test by her bedside and her dead body. Now, what I knew about the personality test, when, when, when I first got in, I did one of these ridiculous things, and they are ridiculous. It's like a CIA checklist that they, they oddly don't use. They get all of this information in 200 questions, and they don't use it, which is, is silly. You'd think they would. But the person who, who did my test, Linda Harrington, lovely person, I sadly believe she's still involved, she said, I'm not going to mark you down. And I didn't know for 10 years what that meant. After I left Scientology, I got hold of the manual, and it says if somebody is above the zero line, you mark them down the same amount. Now, my personality test, according to Scientology, I ran at 80 to 90% positive. And so she should have put me down to minus 80 or 90%. So just then putting that information into what happened to this poor girl at a low point in life, she's told that she's a dreadful mess. She'll never be able to afford Scientology to get out of it. And she gives up. So, yeah, it, it's pushing people into desperation. You're one of the few people who, who actually has a, you know, is fully qualified as a mental health practitioner and has worked in this field. I mean, I mean Margaret Singer, of course, was pretty well qualified, but sadly, not been with us for quite a while. She, I know, dealt with about 2,000 former members over the years. Free of charge, despite it had, we have a documentary maker called Adam Curtis, who's made brilliant documentaries over the years. And 10 years ago, he decided he was going to do a pro Scientology piece to camera, which is unbelievable. And it, where he said that Margaret Singer had basically got people to do kidnap deprogramming. And the only harm that had ever come to a member of a new religious movement was through kidnap deprogramming. Given that he's a brilliant researcher, I was astonished that he would say such a thing. But you've dealt with a lot of people who've come out of different groups. Among those, there there will have been Scientologists. Did you find that there's anything different 
about Scientologists, or, or are you dealing with the same sort of dynamics with with members of of all groups, or do both things apply? I mean, I imagine there is something slightly different, but right. So I yeah, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of former Scientologists in support groups, in individual counseling, family counseling, through doing exit counseling, non-forcible work uh, and intervening and helping to them get rescued or to rescue themselves really ultimately is is a better goal. While there are some things that uh, certainly dovetail, almost every other kind of cultic situation or a relationship with someone who is, you know, has some sort of emotional malignancy, you know, where you just really are going to be infected by it. One of the things that I've noticed that is so difficult for former Scientologists, first of all, is the amount of lingo and language that is so specific to Scientology. I mean, I have the dictionary in my office and I, you know, it's, it is extensive, as you know. There are two dictionaries, 1,200 pages of, of new definitions and new words. 1,200 pages. Even Shakespeare didn't put that many words into the language. <laughs> it's incredible. So already you have, it's like meeting with someone who isn't from here, wherever here is. They don't know how to translate and express what's happened and if someone says, oh, you know, well, I'm called a PTS or an SP or whatever, that if someone says, oh, I'm called a suppressive person, uh, uh, someone outside the system isn't going to know how destructive that is, how much that feels like a knife piercing your soul, because it just sounds like words it really, I mean, ultimately it means nothing. But, and sometimes also if someone is called a suppressive person, I see that as sort of a point of valor. But but I know it's something that people are going to be crushed by and are going to try to avoid at all costs because these words are so powerful. But they they make people, I think, feel that they're having a cross-cultural experience. They're trying to get across what happened and they don't know how to say it. So that takes some doing, just the translating, which I think is such an isolating force in so many people's lives who also go to a counselor who might not know about cults or doesn't know about Scientologies, really. And then the other part is that there is a lot that uh, I've, I've seen this time and time again from clinicians who dismiss former Scientologists as being paranoid. And when they say they're being followed, when they say that their emails been hacked, right, then they're, they, the person wants to put them on medication if possible for some sort of delusion. So they have this where they're just not taken seriously and really dismissed as, as having some sort of paranoia or psychosis. But I've seen it. I've seen people followed into my office. I've had to quickly close the door because <laughs> they're being followed down the hallway. It happens. And so I think that a lot of people just telling their true story about what what they're dealing with and having Sea Org members patrolling in front of their house I mean to sort of a, the general population of counselors, they will just immediately dismiss that. So I think just being taken seriously and being able to express the truth and and having it believed and having it be clear so someone understands it is their former Scientologists are really put at a disadvantage. Yeah. There are very few people in the world that I recommend, and you are among them, because the majority of counselors will try and fit the person into their system. 
I have a friend, in, a counsellor in Holland, who she says, uh, you know, she finished her master's degree in psychology and then she had to learn about counselling, <laughs> but it hadn't actually equipped her. And she felt that, in fact, she'd have been better off studying social psychology and understanding that it, you know, trying to say whichever system you go to, say, Rollo May's existential, where he's going, you know, he's going to say, the reason things aren't working for you is because your view of the world is wrong. Here's mine. We, we can give you that. And he was a brilliant man. But and I do understand that we do need to look at our belt and showering, our paradigm. And, but we need to do that, not have it given to us by somebody else. And so often I've seen somebody go to a counsellor and come away worse off than when they started because of the presumptions that are made, as you say. You know, it is a reality that Scientology harasses former members and the ostracism that comes with being labelled a suppressive person. That There's good psychological work showing how damaging that is to somebody. I've known so many people who, years later, I, I talked about Stacey Young. She and uh, Robert Vaughan Young, her, her husband, told me that, that they had seven years before they left, at about the same time, they had both decided they wanted to leave but they didn't dare express it to the other. And so they stayed because their marriage was, was important to them. And I have met that so many times, a, a woman who called her sister up and said, well, I've got to say this at last. I don't want to do any more Scientology. And her sister said, oh, thank God for that. <laughs> and you have, I mean, here we had a census in 2011 that, that showed there were 2,000 people who said they were Scientologists in the whole of the United Kingdom. And you know that that includes family members and pets, you know. It's like, really, it shrunk down to this tiny little thing. But as you say, the, the loaded language, as a Scientologist, I, I had two vocabularies. I knew that if I talked to wogs, you know, which was anathema to me that Hubbard used this word to describe non-Scientologists, it, it is the N-word in the UK. You, you know, it's a but. I knew that if I was going to talk to non-members, I had to talk. You know, when I use the word reasonable, it mean needed to mean what they understood it to be, rather than being a, a negative thing as it is in psychology. Um, accepting somebody's reasoning for, for doing something other than giving you the money to go up the Scientology bridge. I mean, going up a bridge, you know, what, they don't even understand the basics of engineering here. This man was meant to be a civil engineer. Bridges go across things, not up. It's ladders that go up. Should be the ladder to total freedom. Come on, God. Uh, it's funny. I've never thought of that. You're so right. Oh, my goodness. You know, something else that happens as I'm thinking about it now and working with former Scientologists, they will often want to have very specific ideas about the way I'm going to work. They're worried about being in an office with me with a closed door. They will be looking for cameras, for listening equipment. They will wonder if I'm going to be putting electrodes on their head. I've been asked that more than once. And they don't trust the process. And I've sometimes needed to start with former Scientologists just sitting on a bench outside, just being in an open space because they've been made to feel so fearful. And also they'll often ask me, what technique do you use? How long is this going to take? They need to know in a very structured way, a very sort of auditing style way, how this is going to proceed. And yeah, in terms of the techniques, I'm sort of allergic to 
technique. I think it's good to learn about different ways of approaching people, the people who came before me who had some interesting things to share about the way they work with people. But I, I feel like it's my duty to have enough information on different ways of approaching people that then I can tailor make it to the person so they don't have to fit into whatever system I say I'm going to be putting them through because that just sets them up for a feeling of failure all over again. Well, if it didn't work, it must be on you, you know, because here you must not have followed it just right, or you didn't come for enough sessions. Somehow it turns it back on the client as being the problem. And in addition, there are a lot of former Scientologists, not unlike people from some other groups, but who are, if there is this sense uh, of being against the reactive mind, you then, I think, tolerate being mistreated, being abused even, and it doesn't register. And you don't say something because you don't know that's what's happening. Your focus is on how not to react to it. But what about making sure it doesn't happen to you and being able to label it for what it is. I think there are a number of people I've seen who have left Scientology and have gotten into abusive relationships because they had learned to be fine with however they're treated. Yeah. And and you have the dissociation that, that comes along with that, where people step aside from themselves when they're being abused because of the trauma. And that becomes a behavior. And of course, you know, the concern that they're being taped or filmed or watched in Scientology after I left, they started not simply writing down everything that was said, but also filming. So, so these these records are there. You know, it's like Nixium and uh, what do they call that? That where they have to make self-destructive comments. Collateral. It's actually called collateral. It's like, but you're in this situation where everything you've the deepest secrets that you've confessed are all recorded. And so it it will incline people towards an anxiety, a caution about how they're going to proceed. And as you say, Scientology is bought in 12 and a half hour intensives. And so when people come to me and, you know, I, I haven't been involved, engaged in this kind of work for a, a long time, but when I was, and people would be sort of, oh, it would just take too long to undo it. And I'm sort of going, well, I won't see you more than six times if we can't get anywhere in that time. And what I seek to do is, in Scientology's terms, and I never use this expression, you will be taught to solo audit. And it's not an incredible, elaborate process with hundreds of hours. I had a, a friend uh, who had grown up in Scientology and, um, in, in fact, uh, Steve Kinane, who wrote the wonderful book Fair Game, which is really does have some funny moments in it about Scientology's terrible history in Australia. But Steve's a journalist, and I'm afraid I, I don't have a particularly high opinion of journalists, having worked with a couple of hundred of them. Every now and then with journalists and lawyers, you meet an empath, somebody who really cares about what they're doing. And Steve is a person like that. So he'd come all the way from Australia to interview me, and he, he wanted me to talk to this young woman. And um, I said, oh, I don't really do that anymore. And uh, I started doing it again at that point. It was 2013. I talked with her and I realized just how many people, the majority of people, must come out of Scientology and that's them for the rest of their life. They are going to be caught up in that mindset. They may change the words. You know, the overt motivator sequence will become karma, not karma vipaka. 
notice, you know, not the proper thing. They won't actually go and study any of the texts on it and realise what a bloody silly idea it is. They, they will still believe in past lives. They will still carry on. And they'll even use the words. And because the language is the thing itself, you know, they're living within the map of the world that Ron Hubbard has given them, and they won't recover. And conversation with this young woman was, she said to me, she was 37 years old by this time. She was two when her parents got into Scientology. She said to me, and she'd been out for 16 years. She'd been out. She got a medical degree. She's a clever person. And she said, is it true that reality is an agreement? This is a Ron Hubbard doctrine. Reality is an agreement. We all, between us, agree it's there. How that would mean I would see it the same way that you see it, I am not quite sure. But maybe I just didn't get high enough in Scientology to understand that. So is reality an agreement? And I said to her, well, yes, if you're the hypnotist, reality is an agreement. You get people to agree with what you want reality to be. But no. The next week when we talked, she was delighted. She said, I've used scented laundry conditioner. You and I both know she, 16 years after leaving, she still wouldn't use anything with scent in because when you're Hubbard was scent phobic. And uh, so you weren't allowed to have perfume, soap, shampoo, anything if you were around him. And so she'd been told this thing. And that's where it works. The point where somebody becomes willing to question the authority and then take an action, then they will recover. There's a lot more to it, but getting that process going where they're willing to challenge Hubbard's authority and willing to understand that he was wrong. He was wrong about many, many things, and it's easy to demonstrate. For example, in the false data stripping issue, he talks about Socrates inventing the syllogism. And uh, even a, this is this is where he's teaching you how to recognize that information or supposedly recognize that information is not true. And he tells you something that's not true. And indeed, if you look back to his earlier work, he knew it was not true because in a lecture given in 1954 and published as the Phoenix Lectures, he said Aristotle gave us the syllogism. So just a tiny little point like that to show that this brilliant, brilliant man who is, is the First man in, by his own claim, in 50,000 years to have made any progress in the science of the mind. I always stuck with the thought of who was it 50,000 years ago who made the progress? I haven't heard of him. That he puts himself up as the source. He's the only person who can discover any technology, which is a ridiculous idea because surely if he's going to advance us in our condition, we too would be able to make observations of reality. And notice what was happening, but apparently not. But he nonetheless makes, you know, he talks about the heavy hussars. The, the hussars are light cavalry. Just a simple mistake. But you start, then he talks about the cycle of action. Start, change, stop. And you know, it's not a cycle, it's a sequence, Ron. Cycle is something that repeats. And these things all become part of the mystique. I, for example, I had a course supervisor who was worked for NASA and had a PhD back in my early days. And I pointed out that Hubbard, in a, an issue, talked about 14th century psychiatrists. And it seemed pretty obvious to me that if you handwrite a four and you handwrite a nine, when they're transcribed, you can make a mistake. 
That seemed easy to me. But the course supervisor, who had a PhD in physics, thought differently. He said, I think he's talking about Thomas Aquinas' faculty psychology. It's like, I don't. I think it's a misprint, you know. And you get that that sense of this man who, in fact, yes, he'd point at the stars and say, you know, that was Markab and that's Arcturus and usually the same five or six places. And as as Mike Rinder says in his book, he was a watch messenger. So he spent hours together, just him and Hubbard, with Hubbard telling him stories. And the stories would always be about how he'd had racing cars that were atomic powered and he had a dull body. And it, in fact, Hubbard's story is so restrictive. You know, when you look to... Um, I actually did a show with with Mike Rinder. He said, let's talk about Hubbard's History of Man, his 1952 book, History of Man. And I read it. And I hadn't read a Scientology book for 40 years. And it was awful. And I got to the start of the thing with Mike and said, you you made me read this. He said, you didn't read it. How can anybody do that? And you've got this book and it starts out and says, this is a cold-blooded and factual account of your last 60 trillion years. Later on in the book, he says 73 trillion. And in another place, he says 76 trillion. The modern editions have been corrected to just say 76. That's a lot of trillennia. And then you find out that to, to research the your last 60 trillion million million years, or however, however much it is, it's taken only two weeks. I mean, he's still, he's still got you know, the piltdown man and the, the grim weeper that, that we human beings evolved from clams. And when we cry, it's like getting water out of our eyes. Wow. So just as we're finishing up, I mean, what's so interesting is I'm thinking, you know, what's built into the system is that you can't question. And if you doubt and you question, then, you know, there's something wrong with you or you don't receive what you're supposed to be receiving. So then ultimately, L. Ron Hubbard can say 73, 64, 100, whatever in the same book, and no one's going to call him on it. And he set up a system where no one is going to call him on anything, which goes back to this idea, I think, of being a child, that if you cannot tolerate someone saying, hmm, I think you might be wrong, or this is contradictory, or maybe you know, this might be your fault. (laughs) Um, If you know that your ego can simply not handle it without you feeling or worrying that you're going to implode, you will build the the cushion around you, the protection around you where you're never questioned. What you hope is that when people become adults in the world, they can say, oh, no, thank you for pointing that out. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. That helps me know what you know, what the facts are, or they can say they're sorry, you know, the things that show strength are not weakness as they're usually portrayed in cults. This this would be a weakness, but they really are strengths and they're a sign of maturation. There's not a lot of that to go around within cultic systems among the leadership. No, and, and it reduces the membership to age 12, just before you start rebelling against your parents. And I think that people for the most part, come out of Scientology and many other groups at that age. And they, you know, I've I've watched so many people go through adolescence after they left. But part of the the, you know, one of the things that really floored me when I when I realized I, I wrote a paper called Never Believe a Hypnotist, and which is a quotation from Ron Hubbard, who boasted that he learned hypnosis at the age of 16 and was still practicing it at the beginning of Dianetics. So never believe a hypnotist. 
I just looked for every reference I could in the first couple of years, 50 to 52 of Scientology, diagnosis, suggestibility, reverie, a term he used, like trance. And I started stumbling over terrible contradictions. So I'd read Dianetics, the mental science of modern health, as I like to think of it, three times while I was a, a Scientologist. And I had not noticed that things like he says, and it's in this paper, at one point he says, uh, hypnosis was not used at any stage in the development of Dianetics. And then another place he says, we relied upon hypnosis to develop Dianetics. Then, of course, I, I get into conversation with a man who was there with him when he wrote it, Don Rogers, who was on the board of his foundation. And he said, well, what happened was he was commissioned to write the book. Then he'd been using deep transhypnosis on people. And he turned around to me and he said, well, this isn't very popular. We're going to have to find another method. So where he talks in the book of 273, I think it is, cases that he's resolved using this method, the actual number is zero. He'd never used the method before. But those little contradictions add up to something in, in the human mind. They're double binds. And he talked about this too. We somehow become unable to make decisions because we've been given conflicting information. And Scientology is, you know, he says it's a two-terminal universe. I'd like to think that a bit more than cathode and anode going on in the universe, but gravitational forces, the strong and weak nucleic as well. But he reckons it's a two-terminal universe. And he does that. He makes everything binary, everything polarized. And then he traps people in the middle where they don't really know what to do. And so Scientologists will say, what would Ron do? And the answer to that, he'd run away, he'd take all the money, and he'd ruin your life. So don't follow him. <laughs> That's a good answer. <laughs> and it's true. It's true. Okay. Well, this was... Thank you. This was really, it's so interesting. There's so many things that I wrote down, so many questions still, I think, for us to discuss, like uh, what makes us so willing to believe. I mean, that, you know, I'd love to have more of a conversation about that. Hopefully we can. Let's do it. Yeah. That's, let's let's pick that up because I wrote that, put a star next to that. And um, uh, so, right. So I'll be in touch about that. That would be wonderful. But thank you for for sharing what you know, being so open about your experience too, but also that you're so well-read that you can bring other people into the conversation, that their contributions to these ideas, which is really powerful. And it's also powerful in terms of just when we're talking about people getting involved in cults, where there really is one source of information, that you've worked very hard to incorporate other voices and other wisdom. And even if you don't completely agree with everything they say, they still have something to contribute, which I think is a way of approaching it with humility. I have my thoughts. Other people have theirs. Let's all work together to make sense of this. And I like that very much. It's it's really wonderful, sort of the anti-narcissistic way of being needy or just needy or juvenile. Anyway, so thank you. I hope you have a wonderful evening where it is where you are now. And um, we'll talk again soon, I hope. That, that'd be great. It's been such a pleasure, Rachel. Thank you. One more thing before you go. Uh, 
I am always so happy to talk to John. He is a wealth of information, so well-read, so well-spoken, and he is someone who has been so integral in helping so many people for so long, and so it's really, truly a pleasure. There is a subject that we're going to tackle a little bit further during a next conversation about what had made us so willing to believe, or what makes people so willing to believe. It is a great question. So that's something to kind of put a pin in. We ran out of time to really get into that today. We will get into it more soon. Something I wanted to make sure to tap back into, though, is when he said that cults and, I guess, manipulators in general promise people a great deal for very little input or contribution on the person's part. But that's what's promised, but that's not what happens. And in fact, it's always the other way around. And so to expand on that, when people say, ah, I I found it so appealing to walk into a place and they could provide me with the answers and they knew what I needed and they were going to be giving me a sense of security and they were going to be giving me community and all I needed to do was just believe or all I needed to do was just show up. Well, if that is the case, then it's a healthy group. You can go. You can go for free. People will provide you with something. And even if you don't go for free, still you're receiving more than you're giving. I mean, you you have a sense that it's sort of worth your effort, worth the money, worth the time, worth the self-sacrifice. But what happens over time is that there's a bait and switch. And there is then a lot of giving on your part with very little, if any, receiving. So a lot of people will say to me, ah, I got involved in something and it felt just so easy that I could get what I needed here. But then I wound up needing to take off time from work or take off time from my family. I needed to donate so much money. I needed to tithe. I needed to give more than I was comfortable with. I needed to give more time, more devotion, so that I could be working towards still being worthy of receiving the gifts or the promises. And so when I ask people, well, at what point did you receive what you were promised? Usually the answer is never. What you receive is this idea that if you keep giving, there is a higher chance that you'll receive. And so what needs to happen is that there needs to be a focus that feels reciprocal or that is about the reciprocation from the beginning. If I give you this, what am I going to be getting? And they should make it clear what you're going to be getting. And it could be salvation, it could be the answers, could be getting over something in your life, could be receiving something that you've never gotten. And you're going to be made so busy that you're going to lose sight of the fact that you haven't received anything or very little, if anything. And you're also going to be made to feel bad about yourself for doubting or for questioning, because then that's assuring that the things that they're promising you for the future, you know, will never happen. And that'll be on you. So think back and think about what you have actually received in real time. And is it anything or is it worth what you're giving up? There's this idea of future faking, which is this sort of newish term where people will string you along because they will tell you that in the future you will have this because by virtue of being with them, or you will receive this. And it's a carrot that they dangle in front of you to make you stay. So 
instead of following somebody's deadline for when they're going to give you things and it's going to be based on whenever they decide or based on how much you keep giving, develop your own deadline. Think to yourself, okay, it's been six months or it's been a year. This should be enough time for me to be getting something. Let me look at how many hours, let me do a tally, how many hours I've spent, how many people I've sacrificed in my life to show this person I'm devoted to them, how much money I've spent, and what have I gotten. If I can make a chart with all the things that I've given, and I can document it, and all the things I've received are on the second side of the chart, and if it's blank, then know that you won't ever be receiving those things. I'm about 99% sure of that. And that if you ask, when am I going to be getting those things? It's going to be turned back on you for being rude, for seeming unappreciative, for being closed-minded, for not having faith, whatever it is. So if you ask someone, well, when am I going to be getting what I was promised for what I've already spent? And they keep not answering the question, but make you at fault for even asking the question, then know that it is a very unhealthy situation. It would be like bringing your car into the mechanic and you pay up front and you say, when is it going to be done? And they just keep berating you for asking the question. And then you have to come get your car at some point, still not being fixed. And they somehow blame you for that. That's what it's like in these groups. There needs to be some payout because you're getting involved in order to receive something, even if it's a feeling. But if you haven't been able to get that feeling yet, then you won't because they had plenty of time to give you that. They had plenty of time to give you something, to give you anything. So don't give them more chances. Don't waste any more of your effort and your time and your trust and your willingness to have faith. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow.com at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.